Tonight I take a very familiar text. Romans chapter 3 verse 23. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. <clears throat> and my message tonight is very simple. What really is a Christian? What really is a Christian? I have been a preacher now for well over half a century. And during that period of time, hundreds of sermons have been prepared and also delivered. Countless subjects have been covered, some simple, some complex, and others I'd like to forget and wish I had never preached. However, tonight I want to preach this message. It's the first time in all my ministerial experience that I have preached this message. And it's for this New Year evening of the Lord's Day. Some of my messages in the past have been theological, some have been practical, some have been evangelical, and some have dealt with the second coming of Christ. There is a tendency sometimes to think every listener understands the terms or cliches used. Christians are generally familiar with the major Bible subjects, but often into our churches comes someone, perhaps from a different religious background, and they haven't much of a clue what Christianity is all about. The preacher may speak on themes well known to the Christian, but the visitor doesn't understand all that well, and in that case, he may never come back to the church. We've seen that happen over and over again. In this message tonight, it is our desire to go back to basics, as it were, and to the first principles of Christianity in the hope that it will help someone uh, to come to an understanding of what a real Christian truly is, and also how to become a true Christian. We want to speak as simply and as logically as possible so that no one can say, I don't understand it will be our joy, and I trust your blessing through hearing the message that you become a believer in Christ and start on your way to heaven. It must be pointed out that not everyone who claims to be a Christian actually knows the Lord Jesus as their Savior. It is possible to be born into a Christian land to be born into a Christian home and to bear a Christian name and to receive a Christian education and to attend a Christian church and yet not be a Christian in the biblical sense of the term. What then exactly is a Christian? Well, first of all, a Christian is one who is aware 
of a serious problem. Now, you may ask, what's the problem? The problem is wrapped up in one small three-letter word, sin, spelled S-I-N. That's the problem. That raises another question. What is sin? Sin is transgression of God's law. Why is that a problem? Well, it's a problem because sin is followed by punishment. Not that terribly long ago, I was driving at the speed allowed on the motorway when I was overtaken by a car going very much faster than the speed limit. But soon I passed him. Now you're saying, you broke the speed limit. I didn't. I didn't because he was pulled in by the police and he was at the side and they were questioning him. He broke the law and now he would be punished with a substantial fine. He came face to face with a law enforcer. That's what happened. And in life, we come face to face with God, the creator, the maker of all things. If a person says there is no God, that changes nothing. God is, the Bible says, God is. And he is the rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Consider for a moment the natural laws of this earth, say like gravity. If you jump off a high building, you will pay the penalty. Likewise, if you go round a corner too fast in your car, you will also pay the penalty. Break those natural laws and you will get hurt. You will get damaged. But think of the spiritual laws that God has made. God made the world to operate smoothly under his unchanging spiritual laws. If everyone in the world would obey that law, this would be a wonderful place to live in. It would be a veritable garden of Eden. But something has gone drastically wrong. In Eden, God gave Adam a command not to eat the forbidden fruit. He disobeyed and transgressed God's law, and he brought sin into the world. Romans 5 and verse 12 says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. The consequences were that Adam and Eve were driven from the Garden of Eden and sin passed upon all men and all women and all children as well. God's law is summarized in the Ten Commandments. And you read about those in Exodus chapter 20. We are to have no other gods but God. We are not to make idols. We are not to take God's name in vain. 
We are not to break the Sabbath day, but to keep it holy. We are to honor our parents. We are not to kill. We are not to commit adultery. We are not to steal, to lie, or to covet. All of us have broken at least some of these commandments. If we break even one, we have broken the whole law of God. In James chapter 2 and verse 10, we are told that whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. We are told in Romans 3 and verse 23, our text, that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And hence, all of us, without exception, have sinned against the Lord. Someone may ask, why is that so great a problem? Why is that so great a difficulty? The answer is simple but devastating because it will keep you out of heaven. That's the reason. That's the problem. Friend, it'll keep you out of heaven. Don't let sin keep you out of heaven. We're told in Revelation chapter 21 and the verse 27, there shall in no wise enter into it, that is heaven, anything that defileth. Would you let into your house a friend who suffered from a highly contagious and deadly disease? I don't think you would. Otherwise, you and your family would be infected and may even possibly die as a result. Heaven is God's dwelling place, and it is an absolutely pure place, holy. To permit sinners uncleansed to enter heaven would be to defile God's holy dwelling place. But if your friend, whom I mentioned just a moment ago, your friend was healed, you would be happy to welcome him into your home. And likewise, for the sinner to enter heaven, his iniquitous disease must be cleansed and healed. And the only person who can bring cleansing and healing to the sin-sick soul is the Lord Jesus Christ, who by his atoning death on Calvary's cross paid the penalty for our sin, and by his blood shedding, there's power to cleanse us from all iniquity. Now, if you cannot get into heaven because of your sin, where are you going to go? There are only two places mentioned in the Bible, heaven and hell. There is no intermediary place. There is no purgatory. That's unscriptural. That's a deception from the pit of hell. It's heaven or hell. And to which of those places are you going? So if you cannot enter heaven, then the only alternative is hell. That's the facts, dear friend. These are the truths of Scripture. This is the message 
that needs to be made plain before your eyes and in your hearing. This brings you to another fact. Sin must be punished. Sin has got to be punished if your sinful defilement keeps you out of heaven. It will put you into that awful place of eternal damnation and punishment called hell. Oh, friend, this is serious. And on this first day of a new year, it's opportune time to think seriously about it and to come to Jesus Christ for cleansing, for pardon, that he might put away your sin and that you might be saved and become a new creature and fit it to dwell with God in heaven for all eternity. If your sinful defilement keeps you out of heaven, as I've said, it will, without repentance and coming to Christ, take you down to the caverns of hell. And so in the words of the Philippian jailer, you cry out tonight. Cry out just now, what must I do to be saved? A good question. A good inquiry. Not many are making that inquiry today. But I remember a time when the faith mission pilgrims in the late 1950s and early 60s came to the border district where I come from. And they preached the gospel in church halls, in orange halls, in wooden portable halls, and in all kinds of places. And we followed those pilgrims on both sides of the border, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it struck my heart. It made an impression on my soul that one night I came home from those meetings and I knelt by my bedside and I cried to the Lord. I was asking God, what must I do to be saved? And I was, my eyes were opened and my heart understood, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. That's what I did. And I was saved. I was 14 at the time. And God saved me and came into my life and made me his child. Oh, tell me, have you been to Jesus? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you cleansed from your sin? Are you ready for heaven? And will you dwell with God in eternity? Or will you be in hell in eternity? Thankfully, there is good news for you and for everyone tonight. Think of the great gospel promise. And we made reference to this this morning at the communion table. Think of this great gospel promise. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Our God is a Trinitarian God, dwelling eternally in three persons, God the Father, Jesus Christ the Son, and the Holy Spirit the Comforter. There are 
Unitarians in the country tonight who don't believe that, and others of various cults who don't believe that great truth. Those who say the Trinity is not mentioned in the Bible only leave us to believe that they are not very familiar with the Word of God, not very familiar with the Scriptures. I'll just mention one verse alone which can dispose all of that argument. And it is found in Isaiah chapter 48 and the verse 16. You may want to note that verse. And it says this, I have not spoken in secret from the beginning. From the time that it was, there am I. And now the Lord God and his Spirit hath sent me. Now let me explain. There is the speaker in this text who is our Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the speaker in that text. He says, I have not spoken in secret from the beginning, from the time that it was, there am I. And the, then there is this, the, the, the second person mentioned in the text, the Lord God, who is the Father. God the Father and God the Son. And then thirdly, there is His Spirit. That is the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. God the Father had every right to be angry with our sin. But He so loved the world. God is not some imperious and impersonal deity. But He's a loving heavenly father he is not some form of divine tyrant but a god who is the very epitome of love we were thinking about that this morning god is love that's his nature and that is part of his name and that god gave he gave a loving gift to this world and what was that loving gift his son Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. Of him, he said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. Oh, listen to Christ. Listen to him. Listen to the Lord Jesus Christ. He came not to call the righteous, but sinners, you dear friend. He came to call you to himself. And he says, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. What a wide term is to be found here. It is the word whosoever. Everyone is included, the rich and the poor, the weak and the strong, the sickly and the healthy, the young and the old, the sovereign and the subject, the male and the female, Whosoever means you, you're called tonight. Oh, what a promise is here. Shall not perish. That's what it says. Shall not perish. If you're saved tonight, you'll never perish. You'll never be in hell. You'll never be cast away. <coughs> but you'll be taken in and you'll be glorified forevermore and you'll be with Christ. Oh, what a salvation 
is offered to sinners. What a, a reward is given to undeserving men and women like ourselves. A promise shall not perish. Does that not answer the problem of sin? Of course it does. Hell is ruled out, and now heaven is opened. It's opened. We mentioned earlier that sin must be punished, and it is. But our sin is transferred to Christ, and he on the cross of Calvary suffered the punishment we should have taken. He has taken our place. He has died for us. We should have been crucified for our own sin. But Jesus took all my punishment on my behalf on the cross of Calvary and died for me. Oh, what a Savior that he died for me. All my transgressions laid on him. Oh, what a Savior that his blood cleanses me from all sin. How God deals with our sin has both negative and positive aspects to it. It is negative in the sense that God removes our sin from us. Think of your life as a financial ledger. If you're familiar with uh, finance, if you're familiar with figures, on one page are the credits and on the other page are the debts. In our case, we can say with the children's chorus, I don't know if you've ever learned this chorus or not, but it says, my sins rose as high as a mountain. So the debit side is full to overflowing with the sins we have committed. Jesus, by his sacrificial death on the cross, obliterates, takes away my sin. We can sing then, gone, gone, gone. Yes, my sins are gone. And with John Newton, we can sing in that great hymn, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound. That saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Oh, what grace, what love. What love God had for sinners and what grace has brought it down to man. If you had debts tonight totaling 100,000 pounds, maybe I'm being a bit high, but had absolutely no money on the credit side, you'd be in a serious financial state, wouldn't you be? As sinners... We owe an immense debt to God, but we have nothing at all whereby we can pay God that debt. You think you can build up a credit of good works and obliterate your debts? Well, friend, think again, because that cannot happen. God tells us clearly in Isaiah 64 and verse 6 that all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, filthy rags in God's sight. Imagine someone give you an expensive gift, 
And you said you wanted to pay for it. And then you reach into your pocket and you draw out a bunch of filthy old rags and give it to your kind benefactor as payment. He would be insulted because in so doing, you have uh, graded the value of his kindness at the level of old rags. How many are doing that with God's gift of salvation? Likewise, we insult Almighty God by trying to pay for salvation, by giving to him the dirty old rags of our good works as payment for something that cost God the death of his beloved son on the cross at Calvary. God, on the negative side, removes our sin from us. He puts our sin behind his back. He buries them in the sea of his forgetfulness, and he blots them out as a thick cloud, never to be remembered against us anymore. Now, if someone paid that large financial debt I mentioned earlier and gave your creditors the 100,000 pounds you owe, how much would you have? How much would you have? The answer is nothing, nothing. Your debt has been obliterated, but you still have nothing on the credit page. But if your benefactor not only paid off your debt, but also gave you another £100,000 to add to your credit page, then you would be doubly blessed indeed. That's what God has done for us. He has obliterated our debt. He has wiped it away by his precious blood. And he has given us a transfer of his righteousness, the garments of righteousness for our sin. My friend, that indeed is a blessing beyond compare. Thank God tonight for the gift of salvation. Not only wiping out our sins completely, but giving to us a treasure full of priceless blessing, a heart cleansed, a soul washed, the righteousness of God in our life, the garment of purity given to us, Christ's garment transferred to me, my rags taken away, and I'm now robed in the righteousness of Christ. Friend, that's a blessing worth having. <laughs> Do you have it tonight? Have you a longing for it? Is there a, a yearning to know this? Is there something in you that is anxious to have the experience of this blessing? Well, if that's the case, thank God for it. But don't stop there. Don't stop until you actually know that your sins are blotted out, that you're Christ's child, that you're ready for heaven, and that you have the robe of Christ upon you. That can happen tonight.
by simple faith, coming as a guilty sinner, confessing your sin, acknowledging your need, and asking the Lord Jesus to come into your life. Will you do that? What a start to the new year. And what a start for heaven, which is more important than anything. We don't know what a day bringeth forth. We don't know what this year holds in store. We don't know whether we'll be here this time next year or not. Indeed, we don't even know whether we'll be here this time tomorrow or not. And isn't it good to be ready with the assurance of saving grace in your life and the knowledge that it's well with your soul. How does one become a Christian then? And with this I close. How does one become a Christian? Remember, you do not become a Christian by being born into a Christian country. I've said that before. Or having a Christian name or having a Christian education, or attending a Christian church. We cannot remove our sins or make ourselves righteous to enter heaven. Only God can do that. John 3 and verse 7 tells us that salvation is a new birth. It's a new birth. We were born once in the natural sense, We need to be born again in the spiritual sense. As our natural birth was a once for all experience, so the spiritual birth is a once for all experience. It is a transformation of the whole person, transformed into the likeness of God's dear Son brought out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, brought out of the powers and clutches of the devil into the arms of Jesus Christ. What a transformation. Oh, dear friend, let that transformation happen this evening. In practical terms, how does one become a Christian? In answer to that question, the famous evangelist, Dr. R.A. Torre, said, there are two things you need to know and there is one thing you need to do. And I'm going to tell you those two things and that one thing. First of all, you need to know and admit that you have sinned against God and his law. Second, you need to know also that there is someone who can save and the only one is Christ. And something you need to do, friend, you need to call upon the name of Christ. You need to call upon him and tell the great physician you are diseased by sin and desperately in need of his help. That's the case. Will he save you then? Yes, he will. Listen to Romans 10, verse 13. Whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. There is absolutely no 
doubt about it. Only trust him. Only trust him. Only trust him now. He will save you. He will save you. He will save you now. That was the hymn which was sung at the close of a gospel mission in Lurgan Early Hall, just beside our home. Now, way back in 1955, when Mr. Edmund Sanford was the preacher and evangelist, and during the singing of this hymn, my mother, with tears in her eyes, came to know the Lord and was gloriously converted. And she was the first in her home to be saved. And she told us about what had happened. And then one by one, over a period of time, we all came to know Christ as our Savior. My friend, it makes a difference. Oh, what a change in my life has been wrought since Jesus came into my heart. Oh, dear, if you're not a Christian, if you're not saved, I urge you, I urge you to call upon him now. I urge you to come now. Come to Christ. He says, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest.